And right now, I just push that button right there and say good morning, Ian. Good morning, sir. You talking Don? Oh, Don. Okay, very good. <laughs> All right, Don. Not by what my screen says, but uh, I know that voice from down in Divine Land. How are you doing today, Bob? Oh, you know, it's just a beautiful morning out there. Like I said, this is going to be just uh, an ideal day, starting off nice and chilly for all those people that might be out there in that deer stand, and then going to turn into a 70-degree afternoon uh, in the hill country, even a little bit warmer here in San Antonio. So that's kind of my uh, my definition of a perfect fall day. <laughs> that's lovely. Got a question for you. I've got... Eight hives of bees in order to keep my agriculture exemption on my property. Okay. My question is, is I've got to start looking at trying to produce flowering devices for the bees. Mm-hmm. What can I put in about a two-acre spot for eight hives of bees to produce on? Well, you know, the, the thing that you've got to look at, uh, too, is having flowers throughout the season you can't just focus you know on one crop that's going to give your your bees a ton of stuff in you know at one particular time we need things that are going to start blooming early we need things that are going to bloom late into the fall and a lot of our you know probably the best thing for you to look at are a number of our native plants uh one of the bees favorite for early season uh season is there are several varieties of monarda uh, it goes by some other names, horse mint, some other things. The most common one has little lavender flower, but Monarda is a big, big early season favorite uh, of the bees. Believe it or not, blue bonnets are very popular with the bees. And then as we move into the summer months, you've got a lot of different galardias, uh, where you've got a lot of different cone flowers. Um, on into the fall, you're looking at uh, some of the things we call eupatorium, uh, boneset, they're several different names for it, but these things bloom well into the fall. And what I would do is probably call Texas Parks and Wildlife, and they've got a, you know, they've got a a non-game division, but uh, ask them about their list of wildflowers and plants that support all sorts of things, birds as well as bees. You could also call uh, John Thomas up at Wild Seed Farms up in Fredericksburg and, um, I know he's in the hill country, you're down south, but uh, that man knows more, has forgotten probably more about wildflowers than most of us will ever know, and he would probably be an excellent source uh, for some of the seed that you might consider planting. Uh, Pan American seed up in, I'm sorry, Native American seed, uh, I think they're up in Junction. Uh, Bill Neiman is the fellow that runs that operation. He would be another source of seed and of information for you. And finally, even though wildflowers are not a specialty, I know Dean over at uh, Douglas King Seed knows a great deal about wildflowers, and uh, I'm pretty sure he would have a South Texas wildflower mix. I know he does a lot of native grass mixes, but uh, I'm pretty certain that he would have uh, some things that you could plant on your couple of acres down there. And then, you know, if you want to uh, potentially even have a a secondary source of income, so to speak. A lot of the things that we plant to harvest from uh, are also attractive to the bees. In the winter months, there are, in the cool season, I guess I should say, there are a number of different legumes, winter peas, clovers, vetch. Those are all things that build the soil, 
And uh, some of your peas and things you can actually harvest as a crop if you like. But uh, those things have flowers that the bees will love. Uh, plus, in the case of all the legumes, they are soil builders. And some of them, you know, you can harvest from um, to enhance, um, you know, enhance the income or at least enhance the dinner table with some of the things that you can harvest there. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Is it too cool to put in a mixture of black-eyed peas and, say, Milo? It is, well... to bring the deer closer to my stand? Yeah. Um, Black-eyed peas are going to freeze. Winter peas, uh, black-eyed peas are actually a bean, and we grow them on the same schedule. We grow, you know, snap beans or lima beans or things like that. What you're looking for uh, is a true pea, like an Austrian winter pea or something like that. Those are cold-hardy. Um, the uh, hairy vetch, things like that, are another legume that don't produce a big edible seed, you know, like your peas will, but uh, they certainly build the soil and have flowers that the bees are very, very much attracted to. Um, so, uh, yeah, there are a bunch of different things you can do in that regard. But, I, but like yeah. I say, black-eyed peas would not be one of them. But your true peas could certainly go in now, as could... Uh, uh, any of your leguminous crops now, Sudan and things like that, those are warm season grasses. So you certainly don't want to plant it, have a warm spell, have it come up and then have it freeze back and die. So at this point, other than a few your native grasses, they're not, there's not really much in the way of anything that's going to make a big grass crop uh, that can go in the ground right now. Yeah, my problem is the bees are going to be moved from where they're at to a shelter I built in the corner because when you're on a 1949 Alice Chalmer with an open camp, it's not good to get around the bees too much. Well, your European honeybees not too bad, but uh, you know those. Uh, uh, if you get any of the Africanized strain in there, it changes very much. I don't know what you're talking about because I used to plow with an old uh, 8N that was a whole lot older than I was. I suspect that thing dated from the 30s or 40s or something like that, but. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I will tell you though, and I haven't heard them talk about it. I listened to the outdoor show, uh, that runs here on KTSA, uh, Harold Gunn and Bill Olson, and they had a person advertising on there for a while that had a device that you put, uh, you know, basically on a roll bar on your tractor, even if you have to install a roll bar to be a good idea. But it was something that if you should, have a whole swarm of bees come after you. Basically, you just pull one little thing, and it made like a fog of material that wasn't really bad for you, but that was very bad for the bees, and uh, sort of a lifesaver kind of thing if you should have a swarm of Africanized bees come after you. And uh, might be just uh, not terribly expensive, but a good little insurance policy for anybody that has uh, basically an open tractor to put up there, just in case you do. Uh, I have hit um, out, you know, in uh, just shredding, I've hit a couple of pockets of those, so they call them green hornets, that are that ground-dwelling yellow jacket, not to be confused with our paper wasps, but uh, you sure find out how fast your tractor can run when those guys come after you. Yeah, last time I got hit with bees, I was working for a company called BMA that owns Medina Lake. Right. I was rolling a brush pile in the middle of winter, mm-hmm. and I hit a tree stump, and 
it went from daytime to nighttime. By the time I got off the dozer and ran a quarter of a mile, I got hit 13 times in the face. So I spent the next four days at home looking out the window. Oh man, that's yeah, that's that's a tough way to <laughs> that's a tough way to have any day go. But yeah, there. Um, honeybees are one story, and Africanized bees and the little uh, green hornet type wasps; those are a whole different, a whole different creature. Uh, at least if you do it in the winter months, you probably got on enough clothes that your face is about the only exposed portion of you, but uh, still not fun to get hit around the face. Yeah, and I had, I had an ideal on trying to was to build a frame with screen wire, and when I go out to work. With the tractor, I just slipped this box over the top of it with screen wire and contained them inside the highs, yeah. and I can work around the highs. Yeah, and but again, um, unless you're actually opening the hives, the they're just not aggressive. And even the uh, even the Me- the Africanized bees, if you had them, you know, around your say vegetable garden or flower beds or things like that. When they are foraging, when they're out looking for nectar, they're no more aggressive than the good old honeybee is. But it's just when you threaten their hives that any bee is going to be unhappy and the Africanized bees are going to be dangerously unhappy. Um, but, you know, I you have to get over that feeling like they're going to come after you. But I've had, golly, I've been sitting in restaurants and had bees. They seem to be very much attracted to that that wedge of lemon that sits up there on top of the tea glass and they come up and they'll land there. They'll land on my hands, my arms, things like that. And if you are not, you know, if you don't try to, I mean, if you're not crushing them, if they don't feel threatened, they really aren't a problem. And I mean, the first time I ever did it, you kind (laughs) of, you kind of grit your teeth and hope that you're doing the right thing, but you can work very close to a, uh, you know, to a working beehive, and as long as they're not uh, Africanized bees there, they're not likely to bother you. I, your, your little cover idea is certainly not a bad idea at all, but uh, I don't think you're going to find that necessary for, for your hives, like to say, unless you have gotten uh, some Africanized genes into that hive. And the uh, uh, your hives, I would imagine, they have what they call a queen excluder, which will keep uh, you know, a foreign queen from getting into your hives, which is always a very good idea. I've never had a beehive myself. I've attended lots of lectures. I know a number of beekeepers, and I have learned a lot about beekeeping. Um, but uh, like I say, I've not done it myself, but I do know that there are special devices that they make to go on your hives that let your workers come and go freely, but make sure that you will not have uh, a queen carrying the Africanized genes get into your hive, and I would certainly recommend that because you you don't want to mess with the so-called killer bees, the Africanized bees. But uh, other than that, your bees are you know a great thing to have around. And and while you're planting your flowers and all to help support them, realize that you're probably going to have to feed those bees through at least part of the winter if you want to have a really healthy hive, and that's no big deal. Uh, you know, you can feed them uh, various nectar solutions, be it actual honey solutions. I mean, that's what the bees are actually study or storing the honey for, is to help the hive get through the winter months. And uh, 
but uh, that or basically a sugar water or sucrose mix of some sort. I think you'll find most of your better keep beekeepers in most Texas winters are actually going to be feeding their bees to get them through the winter in good shape. So uh, is I, I don't think you'd ever be able practically to provide enough flowers around year-round that the bees are never going to need some supplementation. Uh, a good wet year, yeah, you can probably be growing enough winter crops that your bees are going to find everything, but having lived here as long as you and I both have, we're going to have those dry years. We're going to have those years that it's hard to, uh, you know, that it's really hard to keep the flowers growing all the time. So learn, as you probably already have, a bit about supplementing, about feeding them through the tougher part of the winters. And uh, you're going to do fine. That's a that's a lot of beehives uh, to have on a couple of acres, but uh, um, it's certainly doable. It just takes a little more attention from you. Yeah, my problem was is the county required me to have seven. So I have a beekeeper that manages them for me so that's okay. that's the nice thing he's already came in cleaned the boxes fed for the winter and then told him i wanted to move so he's gonna move these back to his place and then load up some more so the bees know exactly where they got to go when they come back sure sure so i mean that's the only way to keep around the agriculture exemption because right. otherwise the numbers change a lot between ag and what they assess your property at. Well, and when you live on several hundred acres, as I do, you can imagine. Uh, I always tell people, I, I don't make a lot of money out of my cows, but they sure do save me plenty of money, uh, you know, by having the land on, uh, you know, an ag exemption. You're probably not big enough to have a wildlife exemption, but people up in the hill country that uh, want to maintain their ag exemption and on bigger pieces of property, uh, you can do, there's sort of a checklist uh, that is provided for the things that you need to do to support wildlife. And you already have to have an ag exemption to switch to a wildlife exemption, but a wildlife give, exemption gives you the same, you know, ag tax value on your property that raising bees, raising chickens, raising cows, or other things that you're going to sell um, you know, it does the same way, but uh, when you're just on a very few acres, wildlife exemption is probably not practical um, unless you're in an area with some endangered species or something like that. So probably doing about the best thing you can unless you want to get into raising chickens or something else that you can do uh, on relatively small acreage. Yeah, because I talked to my ag representative, and she told me the only option I got is bees because I'm less than 10 and I, she says, you stay with what you got. If you want to do the agriculture, I mean, the wildlife management, I went through all those applications sure. and looked, and it's going to be a hard path for me to travel. Let's just put it that way. Well, and, you know, it's, um, you just, you have to look at what's practical. Uh, it's like us and uh, my, one of my other hats that I wear in the land trust business, uh, um, in order to qualify land for, you know, what we call a conservation easement, uh, number one, the land has to have some conservable values. And Parks and Wildlife tells us that that parcel, in most cases, needs to be uh, at least 50 acres if you're really going to be able to conserve the qualities of open land. So there are always going to be some guidelines you have to follow. And it's not that the 
not that the tax people or anybody else are bad people, but they're just doing their job. And I, it, I don't know how it is uh, where you are, but in Kendall County, they're very anxious to help you. When I go by the appraisal district and, uh, uh, you know, I know on just equipment and things like that, they, they bend over backwards to show you ways that, uh, you can, that you can deduct more, that you can pay less taxes. And, uh, I don't know whether the boss would be in favor of that or the county commissioners, but I have found, at least in Kendall County, the guys in our appraisals office, for the most part, I'm still having a big fight with them over one issue, and that is the fact that they don't think I should have an ag exemption on the 15-acre lake I have. And I keep saying, well, about all that lake you know, gets used for is a little fishing, but mainly to water my cattle and things. But they're not perfect, but for the most part, they're pretty reasonable people, and uh usually not too hard to deal with so they'll help you any way they can but you know you're going to have to learn about being a beekeeper if that's how you choose to maintain your ag exemption yeah and that's probably the way i'm going to end up being that's probably the easiest thing because i i have plenty of brush for for the deer and i have plenty of open space to go between the two spots i mean and then i have a pond in the middle of it yeah well, just go win the lottery so you can buy another 500 acres around you, and then you'll be all set. You can do a lot of different things. Well, when you're landlocked, you're just in trouble. Uh, well, that's there's there's that to be said, but there also you got to be thankful for what you've got. So uh, anyway, it's always a pleasure to hear from you. And uh, like I say, check with, uh, check with Wild Seed Farms and Native American Seed and uh, – Check with uh, your Parks and Wildlife people. They'll all be happy to help you with their suggestions. But I'm going to be really looking mainly at wildflowers and actually at some perennial shrubs, sweet almond verbena. There are a number of different flowering native shrubs to go along with the wildflowers that your bees favor very much. Basically, if it's fragrant, if it smells good to you, it's going to be full of pollen that the bees will be very much attracted to. So uh, let me know what you find, and I'll be happy to help you any further way I can, Don. All right. You have a great day, Bob. You do the same, sir. I sure appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. So let's just get to questions here. Good morning, Robert. Well, good morning. Morning, sir. I got right through. It was really good. (laughs) Like I told you, you just dialed at the right time. That's right. Hey, on uh, my plumeria, the two large potted plumeria that uh, I had to put them into my uh, storeroom. Yes, sir. And I did cover them and um, actually put some Christmas lights on. So one of those really cold nights, you know, I'll put the lights on. Um, Should I just now sort of ignore them? Over the winter, I mean, no, no watering or anything. Are they? You, you've left them in the pots. You haven't pulled them up, but they're still in the pots. They're still in, yes. Yeah, I would water periodically just to keep them from totally dehydrating. I mean, you could you could just ignore them through the winter months, but if you want them to come out stronger, if you want to have the maximum number of flowers next year, oh, like every three or four weeks, uh, go in and give them. <clears throat> You know, give them give them uh, some water. It's going to be perfectly normal for them to drop all their leaves. But uh, I'd, I'd be watering them at least monthly. It just will get them off to a stronger start in the spring. And they don't really mind when they're in this more or less dormant state. Uh, they don't mind temperatures down in the 40s and 50s. If it's getting close to freezing, yes, I would have a <clears throat> supplemental uh, heat source in there for them. 
But uh, mornings like this morning, I mean, it feels plenty chilly to us, 40, 41 degrees. So when I got up this morning, uh, but where they're protected um, from frost and things like that, uh, don't get carried away with trying to provide too much supplemental heat. Just keep it above freezing, and they should do fine through the winter. Very good. Now, should that heat source be, like I said, I have these uh, some C9 bulbs uh, and, just, and then just other uh, these type of Christmas lights, my old Christmas lights mm-hmm. that uh, actually generate some heat. You know, they're not the LED type. Um, so I had some of those draped over the canopy area, and then some draped around the pot. So that that all I need, you know, trying to keep some heat sources. Like- well, uh, you know, the obvious answer answer to that is just depends on how cold it gets. That's right. certainly going to help you through a typical South Texas winter. But I have lived here when it went uh, close to zero, and you're probably going to need more than Christmas lights if that should occur. But if you have them in a well house or any kind of enclosure, it's really easy to get a little milk house heater or something like that. Uh, those are very inexpensive, and they put out a surprising amount of uh, of warmth. Um, and And quite honestly, are probably going to be much longer lasting than those christmas lights are those bulbs tend to tend to burn out and they have their own share of issues and you know some of them one bulb goes out and the whole string goes out so i'm more likely to rely on a milk house heater or something like that that's designed to heat you know a little small area same thing i put in my utility room up in my barn to be sure the water pipes in there don't freeze and you know one of those things will keep a pretty substantial area warm through uh temperatures at least well down into the teens so you do what's convenient for you but i'd be looking more at a milk house heater than christmas lights okay well very good then that's all i got for right now well then you get out and have a wonderful weekend and a happy thanksgiving and call me next time something crosses your mind that i can help you with okay thanks bob thank you sir bye all right, next up is Tracy. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm doing extremely well. It's just a beautiful morning. Going to turn into a gorgeous day. That little that little moon hanging low in the sky. People don't get up early, miss some, uh, a real pretty time of day. That is true. I actually have several questions. Hopefully, it won't be too many. Okay. Um, the, the first one is, on the the wildflower seeds, the one that includes the poppies, that I guess they're California poppies. Right. Um, should I wait till spring to put those in? You know, if you have a seed mix, um, you could I wait. Have a, a mix. Yeah. The mix without the the blue bonnet seeds, though. Yeah, but they're, you know, when I look out of my own flower beds and things, my larkspurs already sprouting and coming up. So you're going to you're going to miss out on some of your early season flowers. Uh, California poppy, I love those orange flowers, but uh, um, they are sort of what I would call a a mid season. They're going to come into bloom a little bit later than some of the others. But I go ahead and put your seed out pretty soon. And the ones that are later season are just going to lie there in a dormant state. But uh, there are plenty of them that are going to start to sprout and grow now that are totally cold hardy and you just you get a lot more out of them in the spring so i you know wait two three weeks if you want to but i'd sure have them planted by the end of december okay perfect okay the second question has to do with um i have a hibiscus tree Mm -hmm. well 
so-called tree. It's a tree and then a plumeria tree. But the problem with them both being trees, uh, uh, they're no more than three and a half foot, four foot, foot tall, but they're top heavy. And mm-hmm. so if I'm trying to move them in, move them out, they, they fall over. So <laughs> is there any way that I can make them into bushes? Um, plumeria is always going to be, you know, kind of a plant that's going to grow very upright. And plumeria, having those, you know, big fleshy things, it carries a lot of weight high. So plumeria is going to be a difficult one to, it will be bushy, but it's also always going to be top heavy. Uh, your hibiscus tree can certainly become a bush. And uh, the problem is that this is not the best time to cut it back. The better time to cut it back would be as we move into spring weather. And, um, uh, you know, that's probably not going to be till March or April. But at that point, you very easily could convert it into a bush just by cutting it back and letting it come out down lower. But uh, um, Did you cut all the top of it where all the leaves are? Uh, pretty much so that's pretty much what you're going to have to do to force it to branch out down low okay now how do you move them in do you have a dolly or a cart or a wagon how do you go about moving them in well i have i have a dolly except that there's stairs into my house so once i get the dolly to the stairs then i have to actually lift it up and pull Mm -hmm. it in yep so it's not pleasant well, the, you know, <laughs> going upstairs with a dolly, unless you have, if you get what they call an appliance dolly, it's got uh, kind of little ball bearing, um, almost, oh, gosh, I don't know really how to describe it, but it's made so you can lean it back and just slide right up the stairs. has little belts that run on a series of ball bearings that are a whole lot easier to use. So you might look around, and, and they're called an appliance dolly, and uh, because obviously people are moving refrigerators and washers and things like that up and downstairs sometimes, and it really is a whole lot easier to use than just your old two-wheel cart, as we used to call them. But uh, there are a few things that will make that a lot easier for you. But unfortunately for this year, uh, or this winter at least, uh, not a whole lot you can do. They're going to be top-heavy. They're going to be a bit of a pain. But look around and, and see if you can find an old appliance dolly somewhere. That'll make it so much easier for you to go up those steps. And if you're not sure okay. what that is, go down to a, any rental agency and ask to see what an appliance dolly looks like. And uh, they look just like yours, except down at the bottom, about the lower 18 inches, they have this little belt. And like I say, it runs on... Um, I guess they're stainless steel bearings in there, but it sure makes it easier to go up and down steps. Okay, and then the third and final question is this. Um, my daughter gave me a citrus bush years and years and years ago that I just put in the ground. I had no idea at that point in my life that there were graft citrus and ungraft citrus. Well, this this tree now is about, I don't know, 20, 30 feet tall. It's covered with all kinds of oranges on it, but they're not oranges. I, I am supposing they're the sour oranges mm-hmm. from the, the graft part of it. So from the rootstock. My, my belief is that the whole tree is a rootstock. Uh-huh. That happens. Now, it, it, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. But is it possible to just cut it and put a new uh, branch on it, or is it worth it, or just 
cut the whole thing down. Well, there, there I see it's three. Only, it's a mess. I mean, yeah. it's a mess when all those things start falling off. Sure. Um, there, there are really it's three options here. Uh, you could use those oranges to make marmalades and things like that, although you can't eat them fresh. Um, if you want to regraft it, it could actually be kind of fun because you could cut it back um, at the appropriate time. And, and you'll need to learn something about citrus grafting. But you can whack this thing down to, you know, a foot or 18 inches tall. But if that leaves you with five or six branches... Um, you could actually make what they call a fruit cocktail tree. You could graft a lemon onto one branch, a lime onto another branch, an orange onto another branch, a grapefruit onto another branch, and it would might be a bit of a curiosity because they're going to grow at slightly different rates, but you could have one citrus that produces five different kinds of fruit if you wanted to go to that trouble where you're going to have multiple points that you could graft. After that, of course, you're going to need to watch carefully and take off anything that sprouts out below that point because it will try to you know, put on more. The The rootstock that they use, the sour orange rootstock, is much more cold-hardy and much more vigorous than any of the citrus are. So uh, um, the easy thing to do is go out and buy yourself a new citrus tree and pull this one up. The fun thing to do would be to would be to cut it way back and either regraft it with several of the same type of citrus or think about putting several different kinds of citrus on one rootstock. It's not all that uncommon. It's been done a lot. Um, I'm sure that a phone call is too too quick to go in to tell me how having to graft it, right? Well, you'll find it's uh, it's a whole lot easier to see when you have pictures to go along with it, and you'll have to get that either from a book or from the internet. Gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, but this thank you this so is much for your time as always, Tracy. You're always welcome. This is now citrus grafting is very different from grafting peaches or plums or pecan trees. So, you know, be sure you're looking at citrus grafting because it's done differently and done at a different time of the year. And we'll just leave it at that. And uh, once again, hope you have a nice Thanksgiving. Good morning, Victor. Hey, good morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Oh, man, it's a beautiful morning, ain't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is gorgeous. That little bitty moon hanging out there in the sky and chilly enough to put a light jacket on, but not enough to freeze you while you're out running around. It's it's going to be a wonderful day today. It sure is. Thank God. Bob, my question is, uh, I don't know, gold heads? Have you heard of gold heads? Oh, I yeah. Plenty of them, and I can't get rid of them, sir. I've tried for about three or four years now, and... It's impossible. I can't get rid of them. I don't know how to do it. If you could help me, please. Are these in your yard, in a pasture? How big an area are we talking about? Uh, well, I have a couple of acres, and they seem to be at every little corner that they can get, they can get into. You know what I sure. mean? Oh, yeah. We call them a real pain in the grass. Um, yes, sir. They, they, are, they are a very weak plant. And, you know, if you're Bermuda, you're St. Augustine, even your native grasses, if they are strong enough, they will choke them out. And uh, I know I had a field I used to plant with Sudan back when I was growing and, you know, having my own hay, ba- hay bale to feed my cows instead of buying it from someone. That field would get so thick with them that you could not walk into it in the summer and fall. And once I stopped plowing it, once I let my native grasses, and I threw out a little bit of uh, 
extra native seed from Douglas King. Within about two or three years, they had pretty much choked it out. I had a serious problem within my yard proper around my house, and they were, again, they were so thick the dogs wouldn't go into that area. And in that area, I put about a half an inch of compost, just good old organic compost, uh, over that area. And instead of having 10,000 of them, the next spring, I think I had three of them that I pulled. Now, it's not really practical to put uh, compost over two acres unless you've got a big staff and, you know, a very, very large bank account. But around your home, the places that they're causing you the biggest problems, I think if you would get some good quality compost, put it on this fall, maybe a little bit of fertilizer, I think you would be amazed at how few of them you will have next year. In the places that it's just not practical, to put the compost, add some extra fertilizer, if possible, do a little extra watering, maybe put out a little extra grass seed uh, at the appropriate time. Some of the native seeds you can put out now, if this is an area you want to mow, I'd add more Bermuda seed, but you're not going to do that until late spring. But it's sort of twofold. Anywhere that is practical, putting down compost is almost going to totally eliminate those things. And uh, anywhere that is not, just doing everything you can to encourage your grasses, uh, they will eventually choke them out. Now, it's a whole different ball game, but, uh, you know, burning will actually uh, control burn. will get rid of an awful lot of the seed, but you really have to, that's a job for professionals to do. And it can end up, um, it, it can end up being very expensive and um, depending on how much standing grass you have, it may not be practical. But uh, the compost is going to work really well, and it's going to work uh, to the point that next spring you're going to have very few problems. The other area is going to take a little bit more time to control them. You're throwing your money away on pre-emergent herbicides and things like that because uh, these blasted burrs can come up over such a long period of time You'd have to put your pre-emergent out several times, and whether you went organic or whether you used the chemical stuff, it would get very prohibitively expensive. It would almost be cheaper just to try to do compost on the whole two acres, but I know for me that wouldn't be practical, and it's probably not for you either. Yeah, I know. I've, I've been battling them for a while, and uh, I burn them, and it seems like they they love the, the the burning and they just come straight right back strong oh yeah you know I mean? the ones so I, are i'll try the compost the yeah. compost way you now <laughs> and then that just spreads the seeds back into the into that area so give the compost a try and at the same time just do everything you can to encourage your other grasses and native grasses because the burrs the goat heads are the weakest of all grass but mother nature hates bare ground and if you've got bare ground out there she's going to send in something like those guys to at least have something covering that area well if they're the weakest uh, to me they're the strongest in this property well, it's, uh, if your land is disturbed or tilled or for whatever reason your other grasses aren't strong, yeah, they'll, uh, they'll sure, <laughs> they'll sure deal you misery. But, uh, I, like I said, I, I had two problem areas. The one of them took me about three years to do it, uh, naturally with letting the native grasses come back, replanting some native grasses and things. The others, I took care of it in one winter with the compost. So you give that a try and see how it works for you. How did, I don't know, from one year to another, they just appeared in my, you know, at, at one one certain spot in my in my yard, and 
from there, you know, mowing and cutting and oh, all yeah. that. I mean, I've planted them all over the place. Yeah, so. <laughs> and they're a pain. And, but, you know, they any kind of animal can pick them up in their fur. Squirrels, possums, raccoons. Um, they they found some in your neighbor's property somewhere, and they just planted a nice crop of them to get started on your property, and then they've just spread from there. So it's a very common problem. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and do what you ask, and uh, I'll, I know you have results, so I'm more than sure you, I'll have good results also. I'll look forward Thank to hearing from you. Have a, have a <laughs> super day and a, a wonderful Thanksgiving. Sir. You do the same, Victor. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Certainly. Bye. Goodbye. All right, let's see what Faye's up to. Good morning, Faye. Well, good morning, Bob. Good, good morning. morning. Good morning. Got a long list, but I can shorten it pretty quick if if you're short on time. I, are we okay? Uh, let's get started and see where we go. Okay. Uh, we have a bunch of um, Turks cap on this property. Uh, mm-hmm. When we purchased it, there was a certain amount. We kind of let it. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. And the problem is... Uh, I want to have it in certain places where it's not growing, just kind of um, for a, a hedge in a way. Sure. How do I transplant it, or what can I do to to uh, move I'd, some of I'd, that around? I'd take some cuttings, Faye. Um, you can. Okay. You've got a propagating mat. Take a pot full of perlite, and um, you know it. When you dig and move a plant like that, it's going to set it back a good deal because of. Uh, just the damage you do to the roots in moving it. When you start with a fresh cutting, you may be starting with a smaller plant, but it will take off and grow so quickly it will catch up with, uh, you know, with anything where you tried went to the work of trying to move a bigger plant, which can be, you know, can involve a good deal of work. So I'd be out there. I'd, you know, take 50 cuttings. You're probably going to get 40 new plants out of the deal. Keep them in your greenhouse over the winter months. Set them out next spring, and this time next year, you're going to have Turk's cap everywhere that you want it. They grow really well here. Oh so, yeah. Uh, yeah. With that, well, I I will do that, and I'll report back how I do. Very good. It. Yeah, but but just good. rooting in perlite and keep mm-hmm. that container on a on a warm propagating mat at this time of year, and you'll get you know eighty ninety percent success in rooting. And uh, I can't think of anything much easier to root than Turk's cap. Well, great. That that'll that'll help, and I'll just uh, get after that here right away. Good. Second question: I've got some uh, some uh, some space ready to put in vegetable seeds. Would you run that best list? And we eat everything here. So, well, uh, to plant from seed uh, at this time, you could do your lettuces, you could do chard, you could do spinach. You could do, if it's along a fence, you could do one of the upright snow peas, or if it's out, uh, there are some of the snow peas, the sugar snap types, that are more of a bushing form than a vining form. They can certainly go in right now. Um, I still think your coal crops, your broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, things like those are better to go out as plants. But most all of your leafy greens, whether it's mustard or spinach, and I think it is cool enough for spinach now, or just about any of the lettuces or any of the chards, uh, those could certainly be still planted as seed. 
What about bok choy? I, I don't have any seeds, but would that be something we could still plant by bok, seed? Bok choy is probably the least cold hardy of your winter vegetables. Where you are, you'll probably grow it just fine, but it's one that I would start uh, inside and set out as little plants with two or three true leaves. Because when that's that's one of those ones that uh, when it first comes up, uh, it's not at all cold hardy. And even as a mature plant, it's going to have problems at 24, 25 degrees where your spinach and other things will go much colder than that and do just fine. Okay, good. Well, that's a good list, and I can get uh, get going on that today. We, I have a, a bunch of banana trees, and they're not tended much. They're just – they and some of them – have been huge and we had a real we had a we had a freeze Mm -hmm. sudden freeze and so they've turned from beautiful green to yellow should i just leave them alone it's up to you if you want to make them look a little nicer leave the trunks because the trunks haven't frozen just the foliage has but uh, you go in and take the foliage off and they'd look nice and who knows may you may not get another hard freeze all winter just wear the oldest clothing you can find because nothing, I know of nothing that stains any worse than banana tree sap does. But if they were mine, I'd just be taking the old leaves off to make them look a little nicer and then not worry about it. Okay, good. Well, um, that's the bulk of my list. Well, so, very uh, good. Appreciate it. And Thank you so much. And I, uh, we'll, hear, we'll hear from the farmer coming up <laughs> uh, i think that's what james we're going to talk to we'll uh we'll know right after i do a quick break here Faye, and i appreciate the call thank you so much right now let's get back to the phone line it's going to be james and a different Faye and dan good morning james morning bob how you doing i'm doing well this morning how about you sir well i just put another log on the fire and i was thinking about <laughs> Making a hot beverage, so I'm doing all right. Yeah, that's a that's a nice way that you normal people get to start off your Saturday mornings. I get to have a lot of fun, but uh, it doesn't involve fire much of the way a hot beverage is. But uh, gosh, it's a beautiful morning out there. Beautiful moon this morning. It's probably gone down by now, but uh, people who don't get up early sure miss a, a nice part of the day. Yes, sir. This. Uh this weather's killing me, man. It's so nice that I'm trying to get all my chores done that didn't get done during the hot summer. It, it's man, it's getting rough. Well, it's what keeps you young, as I keep telling myself. As I think, oh my gosh, I'm sore that I've been in a while. But yeah, your list, I'm sure, is about as long as mine, and I get a little something checked off virtually every day. But it seems like I find plenty of new things to add to the list too. Oh, yeah, that's a fact. Um, have you fertilized your uh, asparagus bed yet? You know, I haven't, and that's uh, I've got the bag of fertilizer sitting down there to do it. But with giving up our daylight savings time, which I just hate, I don't have evening daylight, you know, like like I would otherwise. And uh, if I get home before dark, that'll be on my agenda uh, today. If not, it's probably the next, it's not really even a major project, but one of those things I just hate doing in the dark, and I just don't like, uh, not going to be many snakes and things out, but I just don't like walking around in the weeds and things uh in the dark and um for that at least that's my excuse for now but i hope if you were to call me in the next 48 hours i'd tell you i've gotten mine done i think it's certainly time to get your asparagus fed um we had all that rain and i let uh 
we have a little vining weed out here. Uh, I let it get away from me on the asparagus bed. Well, I needed to till the asparagus, but you can't really use a tiller. Sure. I've got a four-tine hand tiller that I got from Johnny's uh, Selected Seed. Mm-hmm. It works just fine to till over those crowns. Uh, you can just till down about an inch and a half, two inches, loosen the soil, and pull those uh, binding weeds out of there and get get a little loose soil going on. Now, is this one that you sort of roll by hand over no, the no, top no. of? It's, it's like a, a three-tine cultivator, but okay. it's a four-tine tiller. Okay. Uh, uh, the only people that's got them is Johnny's. It's uh, it's for just hand tilling. Sure. Okay, I, I got it you. It works works real good for uh, for something like uh, small areas or when you have to till over the uh, the asparagus crowns. Yeah. yeah. Did your asparagus freeze back with the cold weather a couple of weeks ago, or did you just go in and cut yours down? I went ahead and cut it down because I yeah. need to get started on uh, on tilling uh, the bed up to get the. Uh, Soil loosened to get the the control on the weeds. Uh huh. So that's what's going on with asparagus. Um, I've been using the uh, drop. Uh, I got a drop spreader that you use on the lawn mm-hmm. to, to put down the uh, growing green, and man, it works really well. Oh yeah, my asparagus loves to grow in green. I just usually just sling it out by hand because in my garden that's the easier way to go, but. I probably don't have as much asparagus as you do, so I've probably only got about 20, 30 crowns out there. But, uh, yeah, those little drop spreaders work just fine. That's one case where I think the drop is better than the broadcast. Going over grasses and things like that, I much prefer the broadcast spreader. But the uh, um, the, the drop type will sure, sure work well for you where you want to really control where it goes. Hey, when it comes to girdling the hackberries that are too close to the uh, the big live oaks to use yeah. the diesel. Right. Uh, I've been doing that uh, with my little uh, hatchet. Uh huh. That's what I use. Hatchet or hand um, axe, whatever you want to call it, just uh, kept good and sharp. It sure does make it go quickly and easily. Yeah, I use a file to sharpen it, and yeah, it, yeah, it goes pretty fast. Um, I've got some weed thatch up close that I really didn't want to use diesel on. Uh, can can I? Uh, do the same thing on the wee thatch, or no? It, the if, curdling won't. If you, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have uh, a single trunk, yeah, it'll work just like it does on any tree. But most of the wee thatch around, you know, froze back a few years ago and has come out with just multiple, multiple, multiple trunks. And uh, a girdling doesn't work as well on that. I mean, if you could get down low enough. That uh, where you got you know all the way around that big old stump they're sprouting out of, uh, it might work, but it's it's tough where you got something that's making multiple multiple growths coming up that way. That's what I was looking at. The one I'm looking at has got one trunk. Oh, in that case, it'll do it just like you do anything else. It'll be perfect. Okay, and remind me uh, how much diesel we use for a let's say a, a two and a half inch three. Two two and a half inch diameter tree. Ah, cut it off. A cup or two. Oh, I've been using too much. Okay. Well, you've been using more than you needed to, probably, but you have pretty good results with it. Yeah, uh, I'm working on some weed sets that that are, you know, way out there, but need to be uh, brought under control. 
And I've been using about a quart of diesel to those big ones. I'm using way too much. I think you're using more than you need to. The bigger ones, yeah, you would, but uh, those smaller ones probably not as much. Hey, I went to a really, really interesting uh, program earlier this week uh, that my friend David Vaughn gave. And uh, it was all about, um, it goes by several different names, this induced resistance or systemic induced resistance or systemic acquired resistance. But it was all about what plants have that basically does the same job that uh, uh, our immune system does to help them fight off a lot of different diseases and insects and things. And he was talking about the different things that really stimulate uh, this. And uh, uh, he said cornmeal is just almost impossible to beat and says that it will knock out virtually every problematic fungus out there and it will head off uh, a lot of uh, it'll make plants uh, less attractive to insects and i tell you what after listening to him i'm going to be i'm going to be using uh, just in my bed preparation i'm going to be using a lot more cornmeal i don't normally have problems but uh, i just did not realize how many different benefits we got from it so uh, i'm I'm increasing the amount of cornmeal I'm going to be doing. And if you've got any problem beds, you might give it a try and see how it works for you because uh, uh, some research coming out of Europe right now that just shows that it's just really remarkable all the different problems that it controls. I get the 50-pound sack down at the feed store. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. i got a question for you. The biodynamic people have been making a tree goop of like Garrett's yeah. talks about. They use uh, cow manure, kaolin clay, diatomaceous earth, and a uh, a horsetail tea. And uh-huh. this is a horsetail tea is a uh, a fungicide. Okay. So the tree goop is uh, you know soft rock phosphate, uh, diatomaceous earth, and compost. Mm-hmm. Well, why couldn't you use uh, instead of the horsetail tea? Why couldn't you use a uh, Corn water tea in that tree goop. Oh, it'd be it'd be fantastic. Uh, that would work just as well, I'm sure. Um, nobody's mentioned that, and I was wondering if you talked to Howard. Maybe he could add that to his recommendations. I when will. You, when you make the tree goop, <laughs> just use uh, corn water tea and see if he, he gets mad at, at you. I'm I'm flipping over to the eight o'clock spot on my log. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, putting that in there to ask him about, uh, I will sure do it, James. Sounds like a fantastic idea to me. Yeah, the tree goop lasts just long enough to keep everything going in the right direction, and then it ends up washing off. Yeah, and then you're you're not you're not dealing with a uh, asphalt based right uh, wound dressing. Well, asphalt based wound dressing is terrible stuff as far as the trees concerned. The only reason yeah. we use it is to retard the insects. So. I'll mention that to him and see what he thinks of it. And, uh, hey, you have a really wonderful Thanksgiving if we don't talk tomorrow. And um, I'll look forward to our next visit. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, sir, always. <laughs> Goodbye. Faye, that commercial ran so long. Uh, let's get started. And if we have to, we'll talk some more after the news. Good morning. My grandparents' yard has a row of mock orange. Okay. And I know in the... Late winter and early spring, they're blooming. Mm-hmm. Should I just leave them alone? Oh, absolutely. You certainly don't want to prune at this time of year. Oh, no. 
what no, you're I don't ever prune them. Yeah, no, and what you're talking about, I imagine, is what they call Philadelphus, and uh, just so sweetly scented. Some people call green pittosporum mock orange, but the true mock orange that your grandparents knew is almost certainly the Philadelphus. I would feed it this time of year. It could certainly use some of the same general organic fertilizer, but beyond that, it needs no help from you, and it certainly doesn't need to be pruned. Well, the veins in the leaves are pretty and red. Uh-huh. And uh, I have it on the front porch up in the corner. It's in a concrete planter, mm-hmm. and I can't bring it in the house to uh, make uh, it warmer. Okay. But I've got two uh, light blouses over it to uh-huh. warm, keep it warm. Should I air it out during the day? Yes, I would as much as you can. The fact that it has started turning color is a very good sign because once they start turning color, they don't stop. As long as it doesn't... In them? Uh, I'm sorry. The veins are red. Uh, the whole they they call it a bract, the modified leaf. Once okay. once that starts turning color, uh, the whole thing is going to color up regardless of light. the The thing that makes poinsettias turn color, be it red, pink, white, or any of the fan of uh, more you know mixed up colors, uh, the thing that makes that happen is the plant is able to sense day length. And when the days get short, the nights get long, that's what triggers the poinsettias to form the colorful bracts. And actually, the flower of the poinsettia is not that color part. It's that little yellow structure that forms in the center of all those colorful bracts. And um, for people who don't have a an area uh, where they can leave the plant where it gets you know natural light only, uh, then you have to move it into the closet and then back out on a daily basis to give it that long nighttime period. Yours is obviously, and you said it's too large to move, but apparently you don't have uh, outside light out there. And this is why, for you, they should start coloring up about this time of year. Uh, last Sunday, I went over to see our biggest grower. We use several growers, but our biggest grower of poinsettias. And they are a little late now, but they are really starting to show a lot of Good color, as you said, in the veins and in those bracts up toward the top. Once that process has started, then they will go ahead and color up regardless of how much light they get or anything else. Um, I would try to uncover yours uh, every opportunity. If we're going to have frost, if we're going to have a freeze, yes, you'll need to protect them. I like using that real, real lightweight insulate fabric because um, it just it doesn't tend to break. As you know, poinsettias are just so fragile. <laughs> you, you can end up breaking them up trying to protect them from the cold, but just something very lightweight over them. But uh, other than that, if we're not going to get frost, if we're not going to get down below freezing, just leave them be. The more light they get, the better they will color up, the prettier they will be for the Christmas season. That really really helps me. They need more light then. Yes. Yes. Poinsettia is like uh, close to full sun. Um, I know, uh, well, my friend Dr. Kirby, his clinic is down off north through Bromfels. There's a church just up the hill from them that has some bushes along the side that typically they're five feet tall and six feet wide. 
in just solid color. I haven't driven by there to see if our early freeze here in San Antonio caused them any problems. They were on a protected side, so I'm hoping it didn't. But uh, um, years that we don't get an early freeze, they can be just spectacular in the yard. Where I live in Bernie, I used to have some of the old-fashioned ones till one of the really cold winters knocked them out. But they grew so tall, I had to go up on the balcony to be able to, to really fully appreciate uh the bracts, the flowers, but uh, they're just, they're, they're a really neat thing, and it's really fun to save them from year to year. Mother Nature just messes it up with an early freeze some years, but if we don't get that, they'll stay pretty, you know, for a couple of months on the plant. So hopefully it'll be a mild winter, and you'll get to enjoy yours for an extended period of time. Bob, is it possible then for me to plant it in the flower bed because of that heavy concrete planter that it's in? It could certainly be planted into the flower bed after we're past the danger of a freeze uh, this spring. You don't want to replant oh, it and then sure. suddenly, know that. yeah, it uh, you know March, April. Just be sure wherever you planted it that you don't have a security light or you know a lot of bright light. And the the poinsettias are so sensitive to that nighttime light. One of our growers has a whole range of greenhouses parallel to the highway. And he was having trouble getting the poinsettias to color up properly in the greenhouse that was closest to the road when they did some serious uh, research to see if what was going on. They found that there was a small bend in the road and just the car lights flashing in there all night long because it's a busy highway. That was enough to keep the poinsettias from turning color. They actually had to uh, totally shield all the light. I don't know whether they painted or basically hung a black curtain over that side of the greenhouse to protect them from light so that they would color up at the proper time. So uh, I would plant yours if you choose to put it in the ground, plant it in a protected area, south side if possible, and try to be sure it's well away from porch lights or anything like that. So at night it's dark and the day it's sunlight. That's the perfect place for a poinsettia. And it's that, <laughs> that change from having short nights which we have in the summer to having long nights that we have in the winter that's what triggers we call it the phytochrome response in the plant and that's when it decides to go into its flowering mode and that's why we grow them we certainly don't grow them because they're a, a pretty plant or a pretty shrub but they can be spectacular when they color up for the holiday season yeah this was a gift from my sister-in-law so it has some good sentimental value too yeah 16 yeah so Okay, well, thanks for answering my quest- three questions. You know, it's always so a pleasure, leave, Faith. Just leave the mock orange alone. Leave the mock orange oh, alone and um, enjoy can... those fragrant flowers. It, it's oh, a neat plant. I wish it was more widely grown. Again, a lot of people in this area grow pittosporum and call it mock orange, but if your grandparents had this, it almost certainly is uh, this variety, which is grown more up north. It's a very hardy plant, but it's called Philadelphus. If you look it up, and um, it's so sweet, even even Pittosporum can't compete with it, and it's very, very consistent. Uh, oh, and so far away, you get the fragrance. Yes. I mean, <laughs> like down the street, down it, in the street. It's kind of like uh, Confederate Jasmine is a little later in the spring, and just such a pleasant smell. I'm so glad you have uh, have it oh, to it, enjoy. And it is it blooms so early when it's still mm-hmm. cold. Right. 
that's what's amazing. Well, there are, and again, we ought to talk sometime probably just about different fragrant flowers. There's a, uh, yes. uh, there's another they call, uh, oh, it's, it's an osmanthus. I'm trying to remember what the common name of it is, but uh, sweet olive. That's another one that uh, is a common name for osmanthus. And it's one that blooms in January, and it's another that is just so fragrant. The flowers are tiny, unlike the mock orange, which has fairly large flowers. But the uh, uh, the osmanthus flowers are tiny, but they are so fragrant you can smell them from quite some distance away. Now, Bob, going back to the carpet of snow is what I call it. Grandma called it bridal wreath. Bridal wreath, uh-huh. But I mean when it is in uh, gets a lot of rain, and mm-hmm. I'm telling you, it just looks like a carpet of snow. Well, it, it it's a it's a snow bank, so to speak, because it it will grow up and make a four or five or six foot tall plant as well. But uh, look that up under the name of Spirea, if you like, okay. and uh, there uh, the one they call the Reeves is R W V E S is one of the best ones out there, and they also are something very very worth having having for early spring color. I'm not planning on replacing it with anything. <laughs> well, maybe plant another one so you'll have two of them instead of just one because oh. they do eventually get old and give out. So I just want you to know they are still available out there if you ever need to replace it. So do I. Get old and give out. <laughs> <laughs> not for a long time, we hope, and uh, <laughs> I'm just going to leave it right there. Faye, you yes, have a sir. wonderful weekend and a wonderful Bernadette, week. By the way, Bernadette helped me planted in my uh concrete pot yes uh-huh. you know bernadette errands yeah 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 we put it in and i'm telling you the root on that thing it was almost down the bottom of that what one and a half foot pot yeah well they're that's what makes them so hardy is the big woody root system they develop oh, they, so it takes a lot of rainwater yep. to satisfy it yes it does <laughs> Okay, well, I'm going to hang up now. Thank you, Faye, and you have a wonderful weekend, weekend, and Thanksgiving. Uh, we're going to start out talking to two Dougs. The first has an 830 area code, the second a 512 area code, and then it'll be Richard and Jerry, but uh, Doug's on top of the list. Good morning, Doug. Okay, I'll take him. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Um, okay, I have a bunch of, uh, of uh, plumeria mm-hmm. that have grown in, you know, they were kind of stuffed with other plants out in the sun, <laughs> and they've grown really weird, crooked shapes. Uh-huh. And so what I was thinking about doing was uh, uh, breaking them off and making different plants for next year. You can do that. It's not the best time of year to do it. If you have a good propagating mat or something like that that will really keep that soil warm, you can do it at this time of year, but when the soil is cold, when the weather is chilly, they're very slow to root, and sometimes they don't root at all. Now, when you break them off, when you take your cuttings, you do need to let them dry for a couple of days. You need to right. let that broken end seal. But um, I, either you've got to have a warm floor or propagating mat to start your cuttings on, or you need to wait till we warm up in the spring to do that. Nothing at all wrong with uh, <laughs> with taking some of that growth back. You'll reduce your flowering a little bit, but uh, plumeria just gets out of hand sometime, uh, you know, when it gets protected from freezing and gets allowed to be a big plant. It <laughs> it, it comes, right. sometimes can become almost a monster. Right. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's kind of done that on some of them, but... Uh, 
Okay, um, so this isn't the best time to do it. I've got them in a place where I can keep them from freezing, but it's still going to be fairly cold, so that's probably not a good thing, right? Well, as long as they don't freeze, they're going to be fine. Uh, winter will, in effect, force them into a semi-dormant state. Expect that every leaf on the plant's going to yellow and drop, but uh, it doesn't really set them back, and, you know, you should have your usual great flowering next summer, so... You know, leave at least some portions of the plant untouched. You want to, because, you know, they, they tend to flower out on the tip of the growth. Can't really, I guess you right. could call them branches. but So don't take everyone off to propagate. But, uh, uh, again, if you can wait till it warms up, unless you have a greenhouse, uh, propagating mat, something like that, to keep those cuttings really warm. Okay, well, let me ask you this. It'll probably be in the springtime, so... Uh, uh, he said some of these only have one branch. Is it all right to break that off and, and make new ones? It'll definitely slow down uh, their blooming in the summer, but yes. Right, right. They'll, ha- they'll have to put on some new growth, and then that new right. growth will bloom. If you didn't break it off, the growth that you have there is where your first set of flowers would originate. But as right. you know, right. you fertilize, you take care of your plumeria. They grow fairly quickly, and where you take off right. that one central leader, you're going to make it branch, but you're going to wait a while to get uh, the summer's flowers. Yeah, some of them are some, some weird uh, <laughs> growth. Yeah, like corkscrews, and they, you know, I want to because I, I think they'd eventually break off just from sure. gravity. Yeah, or wind, or a little bit of disturbance right, of any right. sort. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to know. I was I'm probably going to wait till springtime to do it, but I do have a place where I can keep them from freezing. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Um, okay. I've got a lamp right there by it, so they won't. Well, that'll get them through. You know, I think a lot of us forget that it really can get extremely cold here. And every now and then we get a just bitterly cold winter. So you may have to have more than one lamp or you may have to go to a little bit more work to protect them. But hopefully, hopefully this will be a mild winter and uh, we'll have all our plumerial come through very well. But, hey, always call me if you have questions. I'm always here to help. Okay. All right. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Doug. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right, let's go to our second, Doug, with uh, Austin Area Code. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Bob. Uh, I, that is a really interesting topic, and I, I have a lot of ranchers that listen to your store, your show and been promoting the liquid, the molasses on the gardens and all the rest of it. But my question is, we're putting 10 gallons of that 32% liquid feed on a bale of hay and feeding it good quality hay but what my question is is the molasses helping compost the weeds and things at the end tell me what benefit we're having to the soil and is are we actually preventing the weeds from germinating in the spring because uh, i'm seeing places in the pasture where we fed hay and that molasses on the bale it just doesn't seem like we get as much johnson grass or weeds are we helping that in any way um you the the um molasses is stimulating a huge amount of microbial activity and you will definitely benefit i don't think it really has a pre-emergent effect but it really stimulates or it really improves the soil and as your soil gets better your native grasses tends to choke out a lot of other problem 
things. And, of course, Johnson grass, that stuff comes back from the rhizomes every year. But uh, two things will happen. It will help your native grasses outcompete the Johnson grass. It will actually improve the flavor as far as the cow is concerned of the Johnson grass, and uh, they will tend to eat it a lot more quickly. Cows are, you know, we, we think of them as just big, dumb animals, but <laughs> anybody who's had cows for very long, you know they very definitely have things they'd like to eat and things that they will avoid. And uh, you're also kind of sweetening up what is coming up there to where cattle are going to graze it down uh, more than they would otherwise. Uh, Johnson grass would be one of the last things they would eat normally, but you sweeten it up a bit, uh, it'll become something they eat a lot sooner. Well, it's sure interesting because everywhere in the pasture, we've done it for about four years, we went past that old adage of putting it on bad hay to make them eat it and start right. treating good hay to eliminate the waste. We're just basically creating a giant cube. Sure. And... We put it on fresh, and then you go through the pastures and look where we fed hay in years past, <laughs> and it's the greenest, luscious place in the pasture. And I even had a boy the other day, I said, when you go out there to fill the feeder, go over there where that one fresh bale had a lot of weeds in it. And he said, we want them to eat it? No, I want to see if it'll make them compost faster sure. so that the weeds don't actually come up in the spring. And uh, it's really interesting to watch all this develop. And I just wanted to get your take on that because the, I don't think many people understand the waste and the nutritional value, but the soil sure. is so very important. Oh, yeah. I keep trying to tell them. I keep telling everybody, listen to Bob Webster on Saturday <laughs> morning because he's going to tell you how to grow, grow more grass, healthier, stronger grass with less water. I mean, this is no different than those people in town that are on water restrictions. Exactly. We're trying to get, we're trying to get healthy stout grass. And I see also in these places that when the frost hit, that grass uh, where the bales were fed don't seem to frost out as fast. No, it doesn't I mean, because it, you're you're building up the sugar content of the grass and sugar's antifreeze. Uh, that's why we tell people with, you know, plants of any sort, if they'll start spraying with uh, seaweed and molasses, especially that combination's even better, it, in effect, builds up the seaweed in the plants. And something else would be interesting for you to do sometime, Doug, if you've got access to a sprayer, uh, just, you know, pick a little section of that field and spray it and see what your results are. You don't have to use a lot. They say the optimum is about five gallons per acre. But I've got quite a number of people, especially people going, uh, growing coastal to uh, bale, they've almost stopped fertilizing. They're using nothing except the uh, molasses, and, and, you know, and it's the enriched molasses. They usually have a little bit of urea in there, which may not be the best fertilizer in the world, but uh, compared to this 2100 and other things, uh, that molasses is going to improve all the grass in your pastures uh, <laughs> and I, I'm glad you're seeing some nice green spots where you're using it, but, man, wouldn't it look good to see that whole field green this time of year? Well, and, and yeah, we've been – I stumbled onto what you're talking about about 15 years ago. I cleaned out an old liquid feeder, yep. and I watered it down, and I sprayed it underneath my canopy of oak trees over in the hill country by Wimberley. And within 45 days or so – all those leaves that have built up over the years had composted down, yeah, yeah. and I threw some ryegrass out, and I was growing. So we've been spraying a few of our pastures and hay meadows. We do have a bubble sprayer for maybe 10 years, and where people are saying they see less fire ants and the yeah. hogs are not in there as bad. I said, I can't tell you why. I just know that our grass does not frost out as quick, and it comes on earlier in the spring. 
And, yeah, I just love it. And I just tell every rancher that walks in there, just pay attention to what he's telling you because what works in the city on the yards will work twice as good in the country. And you can also and stay away from those damn herbicides that so many people are putting out. Uh, so you're doing it right, Doug. I'm proud of you. And uh, you well, it, take some pictures sometimes. Will it have any impact on uh, uh, sugar burners? Will it make? Will it have any impact to help deter or like a, uh, anything on a sticker burner? Is that have just got to be cleaned out? It will definitely help with that. Um, it you know again anywhere that you're in effect making compost where that old spoiled hay is breaking down, that's going to almost a hundred percent eliminate the sticker burrs. But um, it, sticker burrs don't like competition. They don't like healthy grass and. Uh, it will it will very definitely help. It's not going to be a hundred percent, but you're going to uh, using it over time. You'll see a lot less sticker burrs anywhere you use it. So, so it'd be very valuable then for us to concentrate our hay in the areas where we have seen some sticker burr emergence. Then we could feed the hay there with the molasses sure. on the bales. And yeah. That would help. Okay. Well, you've been very helpful, Bob. I really appreciate it and. I'll call in some other time about my wife's flowers, but this is, this is intriguing <laughs> to me, and I thought maybe you would like to hear about it. Well, that. I certainly do, Doug. I appreciate you sharing it, and I appreciate you doing it right and, uh, for many different right. reasons. You have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll talk again. All right, let's get back to gardening. Uh, once again, our free seminar this morning, 945 uh all about tools. I'm going to show you that new Max Bit, the easiest way in the world to plant bedding plants or ground covers, things like that. And show you some of the new battery powered equipment. Going to show you what makes a good shovel versus a bad shovel. Yeah. And uh, anyway, we're going to have a lot of fun talking about different tools and some new things on the market. And it's all free. You don't sign up. You just show up. Coffee's on by nine. We start about nine forty-five, and love to have you there. I look like we're going to talk to Richard and Jerry and David, and Richard's up first. Good morning, Richard. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Yes, sir, I've got a couple questions. On, I got a, I got a, a broccoli plant, right? And I, I, I just bought it, you know, for the heck of it. Okay. So I don't really garden much, but <laughs> it's still alive. And I was thinking, what's it, it survived a few uh, episodes, and I was wondering what, what would be the best way to plant on the ground. Or leave it in the pot it's in, but just buy a bigger pot. And you said it's a broccoli plant. Uh huh. It's, yeah. It, 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 yeah. Plant it in the ground. Um, it would be happiest in a sunny area. Um, it is. They're normally totally cold hardy unless we get way down into the, into the teens. You don't have to worry about giving it any winter protection, and it will grow. It. It's interesting how broccoli grows. Uh, when it gets up to the appropriate size, it'll form a giant head of broccoli right in the center. Probably be prettier than anything you've ever seen at HEB. Um, you harvest that. You enjoy it before it starts opening up. If you don't get to it soon enough, it'll open up. Every one of those little buds will become a yellow flower. But you want to harvest it while it's still a fairly tight head. And then most varieties of broccoli will continue to produce smaller heads but uh unlike a cauliflower cauliflower you get one head and that's it but broccoli even after you harvest that big center head it'll make lots more delicious little side growths coming out so yeah plant it out in the sunny spot give it a little just give it the same care you would house plant or anything else just a little has to grow or some other good 
uh, liquid fertilizer, and you'll just wish that you planted more than one is all I can tell you if you enjoy broccoli. Okay, and just one more question. I, my wife has a tangerine uh-huh. tree in a, in a little, it's kind of like in a little, I think it's like in a coffee can. Okay. And and it's we, we just moved to this house, and this house has no trees at all or anything. What would be the best place to plant that tangerine tree? Well, tangerines are much more cold-hardy than oranges or lemons or limes. So uh, just it's going to make a tree. Most tangerines are going to make a tree that's about 15 feet high and about oh, 10 or 12 feet wide. So uh, not going to be a giant shade tree, but put it out. Uh, if you don't already have some trees, sounds like you have a good sunny yard. Um, they're cold hardy down into the teens. Uh, if you want to plant it on the south side, you get even more fruit production where it gets a little bit of protection. But stay stay at least 10 feet away from the house so it's not crowding up against the eaves. But um, uh, you'll be eating good tangerines virtually every fall and winter. Okay. All right, sir. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Richard. Appreciate the call. All right. Uh, next up is going to be Jerry. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Uh, uh, clover in a Bermuda lawn. Okay. What do you? How do you get rid of that clover? Well, first of all, you let the clover do its job because the clover is telling you something about your soil, and it's telling you it's that my, it's telling it you yeah. t- telling you that the soils become very hard packed. And the reason that the clover's doing well is because clover will grow roots into soil that is so hard that Bermuda and other, you know, good grasses won't grow into it. Um, once that soil gets soft, the clover will go away on its own. In the meantime, just, you know, mow it off if it's getting too big. But you might increase your fertilizing. You might be putting on some Medina soil activator. You might be putting on some molasses. Anything you can do to improve, to soften that soil naturally, uh, your clover will just go away. Clover's not a problem. Clover's telling you that you have a problem with your soil. So all the things that we talk about softening the soil, and that would be things like the Medina soil activator, Medina Plus. That would be things like compost. That would be things like molasses, uh, good organic fertilizers. You start using a little bit more of those, and the clover will go away. It's um, It'll go away. Okay. Yeah. yeah, because the first couple of years, the Bermuda was just, you know, it was just solid. Mm-hmm. And over the years, the weeds, well, the clover has just taken over. And I guess soil just gets hard over a period of years? Well, soil gets hard as it loses the organic material that is in it. Um, whatever you do, don't ever use the synthetic fertilizers, the miracle Grows, the Scots, the things like that, because they break down the organic material and they lead to much harder soils, and then they want you to buy more of their products and things like that because it gets harder and harder for plants to grow. So be sure that in your fertilizers you always stay with an organic product that builds and keeps the soil loose. And, um, okay, so stick with the miracle Grow. No, stay away from the miracle Grow. That's one of the things that makes your soil hard. Stick with uh, Medina products or Nature's Creation yeah. products or Maestro Grow, um, uh, Fox Farms. There are lots and lots of good organic fertilizers. But if you're using fertilizers the way nature intended us to, your soil gets softer instead of harder. When you use these synthetic fertilizers, that just turns your soil to rock over a period of time. So uh, 
Um, no, stay okay. away from the synthetic ones. Go with uh, with products like you know Medina Nature's Creation and some of those things. And anywhere you feel like your soil's really hard and you want to speed up getting rid of the clover, in addition to your fertilizer, put a thin layer of compost, half inch compost over that area, and you'll be amazed okay. how much it'll change the soil and the clover will just simply go away. Okay. All right. Thank you. Medina, like Medina, uh, has to grow? Or? Well, if you want a, if you want a granular product, they make a really good one called Growing Green. If you want, uh, if you want a liquid, they make one called Has to Grow Lawn. Has it's not, okay. yeah, the Has to Grow Lawn is not certified organic, but, uh, the products that are in there are natural. So, uh, not a bad product. I use the granular because I don't have to use it nearly as often. That Growing Green, you put it on, uh, and it's it's going to feed your grass, give your soil everything it needs for about three months' time. Oh, and then yeah, okay. And the ha- and the has to grow is the granular. No, the growing green is the granular. Okay, that's granular, and the other is the spray. Yeah, the other is the spray. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you for your You're, information. Oh, it's Bye always a pleasure, Jerry. Thank you, and stay okay. away from the weed killers because they're just bad news. All right, let's get back to gardening here, and uh, we'll talk to David. Uh, good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm very well, sir. How are you this morning? Oh, okay. Uh, freaking coffee, looking at the window, <laughs> waiting for the big <laughs> Lucky <laughs> you. Lucky you. Yeah, it's going to be an absolutely beautiful day out there. There's oh, just yeah. no no question about that. Yeah, sure. I'm, I've got trouble with my knees, so you know how that is. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Makes you, but you know the the way you keep them working is by using them. That's uh, activity right. generates that synovial fluid, which is what keeps our joints uh, going. Oh, okay. And um, I, I had a, a knew it of an old fellow up in Wyoming that wrote the uh, original hiking guide to one of the areas that I love to hike and fish. And his comment uh-huh. was. Uh, we do not stop walking because we grow old. We grow old because we stop walking. Exactly. Uh-huh. He was right. Yes, sir. Listen, I, I bought a bag of uh, long soil a couple of weeks ago. I was, I was just wondering if I could use it on my potted plants. Would, uh, would that work? And he bought a bag of, of lawn fertilizer, you said? Lawn soil. Lawn soil. Okay. Um... Ah, I probably wouldn't. Uh, potted plants, you know, are much more sensitive to uh, uh, some of the some of the salts that are used in uh, uh, in some of these other things. So I probably wouldn't use it on the potted plants. Uh, better not chance it. No, I I wouldn't. That's that's why we never use. Uh, you know, things, organics are much more forgiving, but there are a lot of things that while they're really great on the grass and trees and shrubs like that, you put them on the potted plants and the house plants, and even if you grow them vegetables and flowers in pots, things like that, they sure don't do well. So, no, I, I think I'd probably, uh, I think I'd probably avoid it putting on there. Put it on my grass, I guess, then. Yes, sir. Oh, uh, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've got a canna plant. I don't know what it's called, but it's growth about six foot tall. Yeah, has big uh, flowers on top, uh, oranges yes. and yellows. Yeah, right. Uh huh. Canna, canna, canna is the name. Uh huh. What what 
What's the name? Canna, C-A-N-N-A. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got the short one, but uh, I never seen the tall one. You know, it's a, it's a new one on me. I, I was wondering if it had a, a different name. Well, those are the old original Cannas. Uh, it's the the shorter ones were the newer introductions. The shorter ones they just call Fitzer's Dwarf, and uh, there's several different yeah. names. But you just want the just ask for an old fashioned Canna. Most of oh, them okay. are reds or oranges. There are a few yellows, but most of the really tall ones. Um, those, uh, they're mainly reds and oranges and yeah, those came out back in my grandfather's day. And, um, I remember I spent, I grew up going out every summer and working in his greenhouses and flower shop in the Dallas parks department. That was one of their favorite flowers. They use those in conjunction with uh, the Empress candlestick plants and with copper plants. And you go to any city park in Dallas, you, that's, those are the three plants you'd see. But those old fashioned cannas, they're, they're hardy. They bloom dependably. They love oh, the yeah. sun. They tolerate the drought. And, um, I guess. Mm-hmm. People just, when we got to having smaller yards, they uh, started developing more. They developed them up in Oklahoma, actually. They developed a lot of the shorter varieties. But, uh, no, just ask for your old-fashioned cannas, and uh, they give them some room because they make big plants for sure. Yeah, Yeah, they spread. (laughs) Yes, sir, they do. They're spreading. That's okay. I yep. like them anyway. Well, and, uh, you know, they make that rhizome that grows right along the ground. And if uh, once they make a big clump, if you want to dig up sections of it and plant somewhere else, that's how they're propagated. And, uh, um, you know, keep them under control because if you don't watch them, they'll take over a whole section of your yard. But they're sure pretty. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, but well, thank you for your time. Well, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for asking nice about the cannas. Get out and enjoy. Right now, far more important to talk to a good friend from Dallas. Good morning, Howard. Good morning, Robert. It's a beautiful fall morning down here. What's happening up in your part of the world? Well, it was cold yesterday, cold, overcast and wet and nasty, but I think today's (laughs) going to be uh, nice, and then tomorrow looks really good, so... Back to kind of whatever normal weather is. <laughs> uh, I always say typical. I never say normal. I say typical. But, man, the the color this past week, the red oaks have gone from being kind of colorful. They are just gorgeous here. The uh, uh, the elms are full of yellow leaves. This has turned out to be a very pretty fall. Well, I wrote a column about the uh, dip in uh, temperature, the, you know, the 50-degree drop in 24 hours and it really ruined some of the fall color it completely destroyed the ginkgos and some of the american elms and some of the other things around here but you're right a lot of the others were untouched and are coming on strong the pistachios which i don't even recommend anymore (laughs) uh, got hurt a little bit but the red oaks the japanese maples and a lot of other trees uh, really looking good. My my uh, Mexican buckeyes got hammered. It, yeah, mine did too. Up there, so, mine did too. Yeah, overall, I think we're having some pretty decent, uh, pretty decent fall color. Hey, I want to I want to start by prodding you a little bit on something. Okay. Um, I heard you and the uh, rancher talking about the molasses and and that sort of thing, and I totally agree with all that, but. I really want everybody to, to uh, hear the thing that I recommend that goes along with that that mm-hmm. I think makes it even better, and that is the apple cider vinegar. The molasses, the seaweed, the fish emulsion, you know, the, those things. And I also, uh, like you, I think, uh, 
really getting into this, any kind of humic acid products. And, yep. of course, the humic yep. acid uh, comes along with any of the humate things. So what does that bring you around to? It brings you around to the Garrett juice mixture. You know, and, that's exactly right. The Garrett juice mixture and the sick tree treatment, um, I think, are two of the finest things on earth for supporting a lot of things. So go ahead with what you were talking about, though. That's great. Well, the deal for homeowners and ranchers, too, with the vinegar that's so important is it's the synergy of of the whole thing. If you just did molasses, you'd have great success. If you Mm -hmm. didn't do anything but animal manure, you'd have great success, relatively speaking. If you just did fish and seaweed, you'd you'd have terrific success, relatively speaking. But if you do that, that whole uh, mixture, and we've got... We've got ranchers and farmers doing it. They'll put out one dry fertilizer application, and then they'll spray the Garrett juice mixture. You know, most of them, or a lot of them, make it themselves. Some buy the commercial mm-hmm. products, but you know, they do it either way. And that that vinegar makes everything else work better. And I tell you something that really hit me upside the head about it just recently. I used to take a little bit of vinegar along with my vitamins and oh, yeah. drink in yeah. the morning every day. And I quit doing that some months ago, and I have no idea why. I was just, you know, busy, something else <laughs> came up, busy doing this or that, and forgot about it. Ran and out of it thing, and didn't restock. Yeah, the, the thing that I noticed, uh, I've, for years, played with a lot of guys a lot younger than me, and, and a lot of them, some of them are, Quite a few of them are over 50, but they're a whole lot younger than I am. And a lot of them complain about pains and aches and pains and things like that. And I've never had that problem. Well, guess what? I have been having it lately. <laughs> and I started taking the apple cider vinegar again, and lo and behold, guess what? So there's something pretty magical about it. I think it's the trace minerals, for one thing. And I, uh, the acidity, you know, like we have talked a lot about Oak Wilt and this fellow, the young fellow that I ran into years ago that got me started thinking about the Oak Wilt solution so much was right. using a uh, an acidic addition to his sprays, and he had discovered that it made more bioavailable and everything. And I think I think there's just a, a, a whole bunch of different reasons why that vinegar is such an important part of this formula with, that we call uh, the Garrett juice and it uh, it's easy to use you know just an ounce per gallon of water and put it in there you do it every time it'd be best if you don't if you do it every once in a while probably get some benefit out of that as well and you know for you and me and I'm like you I need to get back to making it more a part of my daily routine and I've always liked just the Braggs was the brand of apple cider vinegar that I used do you have a source for people who are using it like in a ranching operation or something like that where they're going to be using it by the gallon or by the five gallon because there's such a big difference uh between good apple cider vinegar and the you know common distilled white vinegar which is uh just doesn't have nearly the benefits that the apple cider vinegar do you have a good source on uh on quantities of apple cider vinegar well, the big uh, vinegar companies, and I'm drawing a blank on it. I'll think about it before we finish today because I've, I've talked to them and dealt with them in the past. They, they, they'll sell vinegar in 55-gallon barrels. I mean, we've done research out in the Vernon area, trying, mm-hmm. trying, and we succeeded in getting grass to grow on land that had been dead 75 years. Oh, wow. And the vinegar was a 
an important part of the puzzle. Salt was the issue there. Uh huh. The salt water, but yeah, if they t- people want it in bulk, they can talk to feed stores. They can talk to uh, any of the distributors. Can get it in in five gallon buckets or fifty five gallon barrels or whatever you uh, want. It's not hard to find at all. And all the quality uh, grocery stores now, Bragg's is okay. They're they're yep. Not any better than than the stuff that Whole Foods, the Central Market, and and H E B and pe- people like mm-hmm. that make. They'll have some kind of a store brand, and they all get it from that pretty much from that same company that I'm not thinking of the name of. Uh, so it's it's definitely available in larger quantities. Well, I definitely will look for that, and we'll start promoting that. In fact, I'll see if we can find a good source on it and. Uh, you know, maybe maybe even get uh, Medina or Nature's Creation or some of these people that we work with uh, to get them to to bottle it because um, it's yeah it and I think a synergy is the best way the best way to put it. It just makes other things work that much better. And uh, the nice thing is, it's very very inexpensive and uh, you know very easy to use. And long as you don't you know, overdo it, uh, mixing it too concentrated. It just doesn't have nothing wrong with it in any way, form, or fashion. Uh, I, I totally agree. I think any vinegar will work. I think white vinegar will work for you. It just doesn't have as many of the trace mineral, minerals in it. But the overall effect that it does of this synergistic kind of a effect, I think any vinegar will work. Well, Medina's got it in stock already. They're making the Garrett Juice uh, Pro and, and maybe the other one, Plus and maybe yeah. pro as well, so they're they're buying they're buying it now in, in fifty five gallon barrels. So it's probably pretty easy to get them started. Well, I was just getting a label on it. I was talking to Stuart the other day, and he was talking about they're they're going to come out with a very inexpensive twenty pound uh, or, or comparatively inexpensive bag of uh, dry humate, and they've got yeah, the material, they've got right. the bags. It's just getting the state to approve the label. And I uh, just they just haven't passed enough money under the table and done all the things it takes. That, <laughs> but so yeah, if uh, once they can get a label made for it, and hopefully it wouldn't be too complex, that'd be a a great thing to uh, see on the shelf. We, you know, we keep the regular twenty percent vinegar, but uh, you know, for mainly as a as a weed killer product. But I'd I'd love to get some of the good apple cider vinegar you know at a reasonable price uh on the shelf that people could use because like you say it just takes good things and it makes them even better well they're buying it they might even be buying it in bigger containers than 55 gallon they may be buying it in totes or, or yeah. whatever because like i said it is a standard ingredient and they're all already putting a humate it's not as quite as finely textured maybe as is one that we've been talking about, but they're putting the humate and the vinegar and the garret juices that they're making yeah. now. So people can buy those ingredients and make it themselves if they want to go that that route. And the book that, uh, well, two of my books that really explain this the best, the most current, then probably the best for the homeowner is the organic manual right. that explains all this. And then if you want even more uh technicality, you know, details than that. The organic management for the professional book is uh, is the one for you. But it, it the um, the program, the the, rec, the natural organic program for people that have any land at all, I would strongly recommend at looking at that one dry fertilizer a year, and it can be dry molasses or it can be one of the blends, 
and then a garret juice mixture of some kind that at least has humic acid, seaweed, molasses, liquid molasses, and, and vinegar in it. It sounds like a very good plan. It, it you know, there's <laughs> it, it will just take a good thing and make it better. It probably also plays into uh, one other thing that I wanted to bring up that we'll we'll certainly talk more both on and off the air about. But I went to a really interesting lecture this week on, um, in effect, the immune response in plants, although in plants they call it the induced response. And some people call it the systemic immune response. Some of them call it systemic acquired resistance. But um, it, it, it really it, it just made me appreciate how far ahead of your time you were with things like the sick tree treatment because it, it's just a, a fascinating thing and uh, they were comparing it to you know the immune system in people and animals and our immune systems they basically create immunity to one problem at a time you know they have a vaccine that'll take care of tetanus they have a vaccine to keep you from getting polio they have a vaccine and it's just kind of one by one but what they're learning about this systemic acquired resistance is that done properly the plant's build up a resistance to all the different problems, to oak will, to hypoxylin, to phytophthora, and also a resistance to insects. And um, they, and apparently there are a number of different things which really trigger this, and still one of the very best ones out there is cornmeal. And so along with adding, you know, the vinegar to what we're doing, I'm starting to recommend cornmeal as a, and of course it's a major part of the sick tree treatment, but I'm starting to recommend it very highly as a part of bed preparation, whether people are planting bedding plants or shrubs or anything else. Um, I've been recommending it for bed preparation for about 40 years. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I, you know, I, I'm afraid I've been more reactive. I always tell people, if you got a problem, you need to put the put the cornmeal in there, but it just it needs to be a part of every program, whether, you know, as farmer and rancher looking at, at 1,000 acres or whether it's somebody uh, blending it into potting soils and everything else, it's... Uh, it's really interesting, and there's apparently a lot of good research coming out of Europe on it. And I was asking, why is Europe doing so much? And apparently most of the countries over there simply do not allow all the crap that, you know, our government thinks is just fine in the way of insecticides and herbicides and all the stuff that anybody can go down and buy at, you know, Home Depot or wherever else. But over there, um, the people have had to come up with different ways of controlling problems with insects and diseases. And so they're doing a lot more research on it and coming up with some really amazing things. I mentioned once before that uh, salicylic acid is another thing that really seems to trigger this response. And uh, we've got a company down here that is looking at making a willow mulch uh per se and uh as being a source of uh salicylic acid um and i was asking about uh, whether it what the shelf life was and said the people in europe are saying if you're using a willow mulch or a cottonwood mulch or something like that that's naturally high in salicylic acid it does need to be fresh 
And uh, the other thing that really stimulates this is, guess what, something else we've been talking about for a long time, and that is uh, good carbon in the form of biochar or activated charcoal or something like that. But all the things that you've been recommending in the sick tree treatment and in the garret juice, what they're doing, uh, one of the ways that they're working is through building this systemic um, acquired response or immune response or induced response, whatever you want to call it. And um, he said that you will sacrifice maybe 10%. It may actually slow down the growth by as much as 10%, but it increases yields and does so much more that um, it's just I'm, – I'm, I'm glad to see – more and more research behind it so that our detractors that say, well, you know, show me the research. We're just generating more and more research all the time about how well it works. Well, I wish I really wanted to see the research, but that's yeah. the next thing that we need to work on. Yeah, it gives uh, me a, a thought. Willows are so easy to grow and so fast grow, but that could become a, a crop, especially yeah. if you had some area that was in a floodplain or something where you uh, were worried about other kinds of crops grow willow trees mm-hmm. for a specific uh, purpose of harvesting and turning into a mulch. That might be something that would really be good for uh, some folks out there to do. Uh, it sounds like a great plan to me. I had a caller this morning, too, that was suggesting um, as far as uh, uh, cornmeal or corn water tea. That's the other thing that uh, they say is coming out of it, that um, if you have an area, and I know I'd recommended cornmeal to a golf course in Houston one time, and they complained that the deer were coming out to eat the corn and their hooves were tearing up the greens, and so we started talking about corn water tea as a solution to that. But apparently the corn water tea is uh, pretty much as effective as the cornmeal itself is, but uh, uh, this caller this morning was uh, saying that we should think about in using that to make the tree goop, which is another great product you came up with. And I saw no problem with that. I think it'd be great to use that as the liquid in there um, to use corn water tea or use a compost tea with some uh, corn added to it. And uh, they said the research is good. Yeah. yeah, that would help with any uh, pathogens that might get started the other the basic formula does it pretty well but that would make it even better no question about yeah, it one more thing did somebody making a commercial version of that so people don't have to make it themselves every time although it's pretty easy to make <laughs> well the main ingredients and and we're still getting we're not uh having any problem getting a really good powdered rock phosphate and uh, down here at Carpool, they're the ones who are putting it up in their little white tubs. And I know you mentioned that it was harder to find in a powder, but uh, um, they're they're turning out a ton of it. And anybody looking for the uh, for that fairly finely powdered material, which we use for lots of other purposes too, it's it's certainly on the market now. Yeah, I talked to him at the last event. We ran into each other, uh, Hammer, uh, Scott Hammer. Mm-hmm. The other formula that I'm becoming more and more a fan of, those even easier, is just 50% uh, compost and 50% azomite and mm-hmm. water, and, and slather it on. The azomite is a is a really terrific product and gives you the same benefits as the soft uh, rock phosphate. And that's true. So either way, it um, it'll work. And that azomite is is already available in a finely powdered. In fact, uh, they they actually have three different forms: uh, the powdered, the granular, and then the molasses coated granular. So that's that's another easy one to get. Yep. yep. If you do the regular 
sick tree treatment, though, you normally aren't even going to have to worry about that until somebody runs into your uh, <laughs> tree trunk with a car or something. And then you're going to need the tree goop. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, very good. Well, it's uh, it's just fun. It's fun learning. It's funny, fun hearing other people that are relearning the same things that uh, you've been promoting for a long time. But uh, it's just uh, it just makes me feel good to see it becoming more mainstream. It doesn't happen fast enough. Fast enough. But uh, uh, this is one of those times when I feel like we're really making some progress because people are really seeing demonstrable results and telling other people about it. Yeah, it's moving in the right direction. We wish it would be uh, faster. One of the problems is that the people that promote the um, the other way of doing it say the only reason that the organic program seems to be working so well for people is that people that are organic gardeners just work harder at it and are out there more <laughs> often, and that's the only reason it's working. It's uh, kind of frustrating at times, but oh. we're making some progress. We're we're making some progress, and I, I don't think we'll ever hear a word from them, but you've had your critics. I've certainly had my critics talking about cornmeal and these other things against oak wilt, and uh, and, and to the point that, you know, our, our guy with the Forest Service and some of the others called me by name telling people, don't believe any of this stuff, don't believe it works, blah, blah, blah. I'm just real interested to see how they're going to change their tune now that this idea that plants really do have an immune response and that it really does solve problems like oak wilt. But, you know, I haven't had one phone call to say, hey, maybe we were wrong. They just go right on, you know, promoting the injections and everything else. And uh, um, But it's it's real interesting that uh, the number of uh, tree companies here, I think, that are moving away from that and moving to more you know, corn water, tea, and corn, and uh, and basically a sick tree treatment program is all you need. You don't need something that costs $500 a tree to inject that if you just support the tree properly, it'll fight it off on its own. And I was up, I uh, hadn't been up in a year or so, but the fellow I buy hay from uh, uh, was looking at, and I think I've told you that story, he's got these two monstrous oak trees that, you no know, trunks are four or five feet in diameter, and they were like, 70% defoliated with oak wilt when I got him to start with the cornmeal treatment. And that was about four or five years ago. And today, you know, those trees are as beautiful as anything else. And all the trees around that didn't get treated are all dead. But uh, it very definitely works. I think you showed me those trees. Yeah, that was a that was a good thing to see. It, it works. It You know, it's not 100%. Nothing in life is. But uh, it sure works better than any other uh, approach. And more and more... Of uh, the arbors get into it, the better. I had an interesting thing. I wrote a column about uh, leaf management and grind, you know, mulching the leaves into the turf. And I was driving around taking pictures for the column. <laughs> I just turned in, right? And I took a picture of stuffed bags full of leaves with the leaves hanging out. Not it's going to be part of the column that'll run this coming Thursday. And I also saw a guy mulching the. Um, uh, leaves into the uh, into the turf. Hispanic guy, and he had a truck. It didn't have a name on his truck. You know, uh-huh. a, a fairly small company, I guess. And I started walking up to him, and I stuck up my thumb, you know, like good job. And he turned around and gave me the same thumbs up. He knew exactly <laughs> what I was coming up to talk to him about. And he pointed over it to the area where he had already mulched the leaves in, and uh-huh. said, look how beautiful it is. I said, I. I'm writing a column about how stupid it is not to do what you're doing. Thanks a bunch. 
So it's uh, we're making a little progress there too, but not near enough because you can see thousands of bags of leaves right now around my neighborhood. Well, you know the solid waste people in Dallas and here in San Antonio both they should be promoting this. They should be praising you know what you're doing and what we try to do because landfill space is getting you know Absolutely. more and more scarce and more and more expensive, and so they ought to be. I, you know, I wish they would do up there. I know, you know, here uh, what you pay for garbage pickup and all this included in your utility bill. I sure wish they would include a little flyer in there about exactly this and uh, and promote the benefits of it, not just the benefit of keeping it out of the landfill, but uh, just the, the benefits it provides to the plants and to the landscape is so great. And I wish they'd get on board and start helping us promote it a little bit more. Well, I was taking a picture in one yard, and this young uh, woman came out, the uh, owner, and she said, could you help me? We don't know how to get rid of it. We just bought the house, just moved it. We don't know how to get somebody to pick up these bags. And I said, can I tell you, can I give you some advice? <laughs> and I told her that she ought to dump them back out and mulch them in, and I'll be darned if the next day I went by there and, and they had done it. Oh, really? So, yeah, we're definitely making a little uh, a little progress, but she pointed out the main problem that we've got. She said that the, the lawn care people, you know, did it. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't tell them to put it in bags. Sure. And that that's what normally is going on. So getting the landscape companies like the fellow that was doing it the right way, you yeah. know, to, to uh, all do it, that's the secret to it, not the homeowners so much because they're not going to pay any attention to it. If they can afford to hire somebody, they're not – they're not going to be uh, dealing with the, the details. Well, in and cases. you bring up another very important point too that I think bodes very well for the future. And I think I've told you that one of the one of the big changes that Roberta and I have seen in our business over the past two or three years is the decrease in age of our average customer. You know, I would have to say five years ago, and certainly 10 or 15 years ago, our average primary customer was probably 45 to 65 years old. We are just covered up with young people, I don't like the term millennials, but people in their late teens, early 20s, that you look out in the nursery, and they're, on any given day, probably the majority of the people out there and these people are easily influenced. These people learn. You mentioned the young homeowner there that is suddenly, you know, realizing that, uh, you know, maybe we ought to be thinking more about the environment and a lot of other things. And I think we've got a, a great market out there in a younger generation that really seems to be increasing their interest in plants, in gardening, and in uh, general environmental protection. So it's just, <laughs> I, I'm on one of those very positive trends right now. <laughs> Some of this stuff comes out. And, and I actually heard Bayer advertising on the radio how good they were for human health and all. And, uh, you know, I just shake my head and think, how how can anybody in their right mind believe that stuff? But a lot of good things going on, and I'm uh, I'm real happy to see it, and, of course, this time of year, when we talk about how much we have to give thanks for, that's that's one of the things that I'm very thankful for. Absolutely. Well, uh, we'll talk to everybody uh, next week. I'll probably see you in person for a little quick visit. And sure. Look forward to that. Looking. And, uh, we'll visit again on the, 
air next Saturday. And in the meantime, hope you guys have just the best Thanksgiving ever. And uh, here. you were certainly one of the one of the things I'm thankful for in life as well. So you and Judy and the pups and the kids, uh, just keep up all the good stuff, and we sure look forward to seeing you. Same thing there. See you, Bob. Thanks, Thanks, Howard. Bye. Mr. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor, and if you haven't discovered DirtDoctor.com, let me tell you, it's the best website on the Internet where you are looking to get information that really works in South Texas. Howard, of course, is in Dallas, but uh, I lived in Dallas and, you know, grew up going to Dallas every summer. I can tell you virtually everything that they do in Dallas is certainly applicable to here in San Antonio. So when you turn to the Internet for questions, make DirtDoctor.com your first stop because you're probably going to find exactly what you need there. All right, looks like we're going to talk to Elaine and Maggie and Kay, and let's just get to it. Good morning, Elaine. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I've got a asparagus growing in a barrel, which was not a good idea because they have multiplied <laughs> so. Uh, when's the best time for me to demolish the barrel and get my asparagus move to a better location and we're talking about edible asparagus i take it yes uh-huh right now would be just fine go ahead and cut the okay. tops back if they haven't frozen or cut them back regardless uh if they have frozen they should be cut back but cut it back and uh again have a beautiful stretch of weather here do it sometime in the next few days okay that's what i needed to know thank you is and, and now this oh. this clump that you have growing in the barrel is it like several little different heads of asparagus, or is it all basically coming out at one point? It's several different heads. Okay. Well, then break them up, you know, spread them apart, and when you replant them, you want to plant them reasonable soil, but absolute full sun if at all possible, and put those individual little clumps about 18 inches apart if you want to not have to face this for another five to seven years before they'll need to be thinned out again. And um, this first year, harvest a little bit of asparagus if you like, but because you are inevitably going to do some damage getting them out of the barrel, getting them pulled apart, getting them replanted, don't harvest for too long. Let them put most of their energy this year into getting well-established, and then next year you'll be eating uh, good asparagus for a month or six weeks. Okay. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, and have a great uh, Thanksgiving. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks, Elaine. Bye. All right. Uh, next up is Maggie. Good morning, Maggie. Good morning. Good morning. I want to tell you, tell you what the city of Fredericksburg does for us here. Okay. We don't bag. You uh, vacuum. <laughs> they have a big machine that comes along with the... You rake them out to the curb. Mm-hmm. They have a big machine that comes along like with, with like an elephant tusk. And it picks up <laughs> all the leaves. They take them out to the dump, they mulch them, and then you can go to the dump and buy the mulch very cheaply. You know, Fredericksburg is so progressive in so many ways. <laughs> it's just it, that's the way it ought to be done. And, um, yeah, I've uh, I've talked to a number of friends that have properties up there, and I don't know why people don't look at their example and follow it, but, you know, you're, they're doing it right, and they're picking them up to begin with. They're doing it right by composting them and giving them back to you. Now, my personal thought is the only way people could improve that would be just mowing through them and leaving them on the yard to begin with. But if you want to get rid of them, Fredericksburg is the... That's what I do. I have I have my yard man mow them. I don't yeah. mind 
all of my life, I have never raked up leaves. I've always <laughs> mowed them. <laughs> Fifty years ago, I was mowing them. So. Well, you know, just uh, lead by example, and I sure appreciate you calling and bringing it up. Anything I can help you with no. today? No, just um, come help me cut all my frozen plants down. <laughs> as soon as I get mine done, I'll come help you. How's that? very good thank you bob so much for your program i love it always a pleasure always good to talk to you as well and uh again i wish you and all yours very happy thanksgiving maggie and i know we'll talk again soon um let's keep going let me go ahead and talk to Kay, and then we'll do a break good morning Kay. yes good morning bob i'll try to be quick i have a couple of questions um howard's talking about well you always talk about the sick tree treatment right at this moment in time, I have a very healthy four-and-a-half-year-old red oak. Um, very healthy. Birds mm-hmm. love it. It's tall and green. And Anyway, is there any negative to putting a sick tree treatment around the drip line of that tree? It'll cost you a few dollars, and that's uh, money well spent. No, there's absolutely no negatives. Uh, I, You know, the... Part of the sick tree treatment, of course, is exposing the root flare, and I presume this tree is probably already exposed and just, you know, not putting... Uh, sick tree treatment is just like a really good enhanced mulch, and I can't think of a plant in the world that would not benefit from it. If I were doing a plant that, you know, wants to be careful that we don't keep it too wet, like a mountain laurel, I probably wouldn't put it out quite as thickly as I would around... Uh, uh, your red oak or my live oak or somebody else's, uh, you know, hill country mm-hmm. maple or something like that. But no, I think you would be creating more of this systemic immune response that we were systemic induced response, I should say. I mm-hmm. think you'd be making your tree much healthier. <clears throat> Looks great now, but uh, kind of like. Would you taking... mind giving me the ingredients real quick? I have not had to use it. I haven't had anything sick, but I'd like to really consider it. Well, you can get it in written form at dirtdoctor.com, and it is not just one thing. It is a combination, basically, of compost, of green sand, a little bit of lava sand, a little bit of cornmeal, and those are going to be the principal things. I hope I'm not leaving out anything. I'll have to go back to dirtdoctor.com and look (laughs) at it to be sure. But um, those are the main things that would go into it, either mulch or compost, plus green sand, plus cornmeal, plus plus a little bit of lava sand. And um, uh, compost is even better than mulch. But if you want to not use as much compost and kind of blend it with mulch to create even more, that will work fine as well. And go up, not up against the trunk, but all around the drip line. All around. Start out about three feet away from the trunk Mm -hmm. and then just uh, spread it over as much of the area as you can. About, and I'm guessing at footage, I'm not good with distances, but there is a dead uh, red oak about 50 feet away in a far corner of my yard. Mm -hmm. And it came to me via a large coffee pot which a friend gave me, which she had thought was strictly a loquat. Uh-huh. And I planted it, oh, 15 years ago, and the loquat, I didn't know what was in that pot, so I stuck it in a corner. And lo and behold, out of that ground came the loquat uh-huh. and a red oak, thanks <laughs> to a squirrel, I'm sure. Uh-huh. And they both took off, and I said, okay, guys, which one of you is going to win? And the loquat's still doing good. The red oak shot above it, and now it is totally dead. 
which kind of makes me nervous because I really don't want to cut both of them down. Mm-hmm. But I'm concerned about the roots on that red oak. Don't worry about the roots on the red oak. The roots will die away and rot away totally naturally. They're not creating any problem, and there's no... trip trip across my yard and attack the good red oak? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. Red oaks don't tend to form the root um, junctures, the fusing that we get in live oaks. I wouldn't be at all concerned about that. But if you want to put a little bit of sick tree treatment around your loquat, That'll mm-hmm. make it even healthier and will do even the more birds to your... love it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The, to... I actually tried to eat one of those little yellow things. Uh-huh. I'm so glad the birds like it because it's not going <laughs> Wow. Well, maybe you didn't let it get quite ripe enough. Uh-huh. But uh, Anyway, Kate, no, I think that'd be a great thing to do. The other thing was Howard was talking about drinking the apple vinegar. Mm-hmm. Where does one get that? Um, Whole Foods, uh, I like natural grocers better. They okay. seem to have yeah, better I prices. Yeah, but looks at my, the one I like is Bragg's, B-R-A-G-G-S, Bragg's Apple Cider Vinegar. And um, he makes actually kind of a smoothie. I was uh, spent the night with him one time when I was up there. We were doing a speaking engagement together. And, you know, he adds uh, a bunch of different, much more flavorful things. But I just, I don't mind just a swig of apple cider vinegar. It kind of puckers you a little bit. But uh, <laughs> just, yeah, look for Bragg's at natural grocers or somewhere like that. And uh, it's very definitely good for you. Okay. And now about the grass and the leaves. Mm-hmm. I have mulched everything in my yard. This is the time of the year when I pick up my neighbor's brown paper bags and uh-huh. they're out on the curb, and I cart them back home, and I've been using those as is directly out of the bags and throw them under large bushes as right. mulching. Right. But it, I hadn't considered throwing it on my grass and running the lawnmower through it and just leaving it sit on the grass. It'll benefit anywhere you use it. Any place, yeah. of course. That's going to my neighbors think i'm nuts but you know i also have extraordinarily healthy grass and they keep thinking they ask me what do i put on it sometimes i think it's good to be viewed as a little bit on the crazy side thomas and bernie we're going to run a little short on time bernie if i need to take your call off the air while jim and martin are getting ready for their show i will do so but uh don thank you for all you do and thomas good morning good morning bob morning sir uh, talking about uh, new earth, <clears throat> could you uh, suggest to them to bag their, put some uh, uh, bag their compost in a bigger bag? I went over here. I finally found yeah. it, but that little old bag's a joke. <laughs> well, I they don't necessarily listen to me, but I will certainly point that out. Well, I'd buy it from them if they'd put it out there. I mean, at least, a, you know, a big bag. Yeah, like a two-cubic-foot bag or at least a foot and a half. I'll suggest it to them. Another thing real quick, uh, do they have a cedar eater in California? I am not aware of it. Uh, it certainly wouldn't be the same company. Our local company has uh, both North and South Texas locations, but somebody may be doing that out there, and uh might give them a call. They're nice folks, and uh, they may know somebody over there because they do network with a lot of people around the country. Well, God knows. I mean, what the heck is it that burns over there? It's so well, if you've ever been in that canyon country uh, over there, unfortunately, it is so steep that uh, they couldn't use the same kind of machine they use here. But, yeah, they've got like a scrubby growth, but on very steep hillsides, and that's what makes it burn and so hard to control. 
Oh, no, man. Okay. Well, it's just kind of an oily. Must be an oily brush or something. It is. It is. It's, uh, oh, anyway. Okay, Bob, I know you're short, short of time. I appreciate, I appreciate it. Happy Thanksgiving, and I appreciate you, Thomas. We'll talk again, and let me at least get started with Bernie. Good morning, Bernie. Good morning. A quick question. <clears throat> I have a huge uh, ponytail plant I've had for four, 45 years. It's outgrowing my ceiling. Can I put it outside? No. You could in the spring, but it will freeze and die. Uh, in the spring, wait until spring to do this, but you can cut that trunk down. When they ship these things, when they dig them out of the deserts of Mexico and ship them to this country, they cut them down to the trunk being no more you know, than a foot tall, and 99% of them come out with multiple heads and continue growing. So can't put it outside, but you can sure whack that trunk off. It'll come out below that point beautifully for you. But wait and do that about March or April. Call me if you need more help on uh, exactly how to do it. I'll be happy to talk to you. Okay, thank you.